listening to SBS On The Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. Hi everyone, Ricardo Gonsalves with SBS On The Money for this Thursday, the 25th of February 2021. It's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap. Later, a quote, closer look at Qantas and its $1 billion half-year loss. But first, to buy now, pay later and afterpay. 13.1 million customers, an increase of 80% on the year, but it didn't post a profit. Like its rival Zip, they are spending lots of money to expand overseas, especially in the US. So for more, I spoke earlier with Afterpay CEO, Anthony Eisen. Just how much more of this explosive growth is there? Look, we're really still at a very early stage of what is the opportunity ahead of us. Um, it's not just limited to um, a retail equation or a payment equation. What we've seen here is really the early stages of a generational shift away from traditional credit. Um, Afterpay has been one of the early recognisers of this trend and we've developed our service exactly to hit the changing needs of particularly millennials and Gen Z that are becoming the most important part of the economies globally. Um, in terms of the way that we're developing our relationships with some of the key global retailers that are relevant to both e-commerce and physical commerce. We're still at a very early stage. Those opportunities, though, are they mainly overseas? Will, will you be focusing, for example, more so in the U.S.? Well, we're growing very, very strongly in the US, as you can see from our results today, but also the UK, and imminently we're about to launch in Europe as well, which we're very excited about. Working globally with our core retailers as well is very important. Um, I would, however, say that even though Australia and New Zealand is still our most mature market, um, we expect a lot of very strong growth from Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, you've seen we've grown underlying sales in Australia and New Zealand by over 50% on the previous period in the last half. And we think there's still several new retail and service verticals that we'll be expanding into to grow the ecosystem in Australia and New Zealand. That move into the US, is a, a, a Wall Street listing imminent? We've been very privileged to have, um, you know, very significant US investors wanting to be part of our company. Um, the proportion of our register that comes from international now is very, very significant. Uh, we do get a lot of demand from the US. Um, if it makes sense and it maximises shareholder value to uh, look at an additional listing, um, potentially in the US, then the board will be actively attuned to that. This new industry-created code of conduct, will it change the way you operate at all? It won't change the way that we operate at all, but it will perpetuate the core principles that are really important as to, you know, why afterpay is different and how an emerging industry can have good regulation and the right level of oversight and make sure companies that are entering into the space have the appropriate checks and balances. The really positive element of the code is it recognises that a lot of different players have different business models, but in new sectors where technology can breed choice and competition, this will provide a very effective frame work. And of course, you would have seen and, and no doubt note the consumer groups saying that providers clearly offer credit and must be regulated as such under a National Credit Act. What do you say to that? And what do you say to those that say the industry here should be regulated as the same way the UK is looking at doing it? 
the way Afterpay works and the results that we drive are very different to traditional finance companies and particularly credit card companies. That's been recognised now over several debates in the Australian um, economy, but also overseas as well. Um, the issue for us is not about regulation or non-regulation. We think regulation is very important. We've always been proponents of it. The key thing is that it's proportionate to what we do. Um, we are unlike traditional credit. New companies coming into the sector that are bringing very good competition are also unlike traditional credit providers. So it's not about avoiding um, you know, the right level of consumer protection. It's recognising those differences. We're very proud of the fact that our default rates and the metrics and the results to date illustrate that we've performed exceptionally better than most traditionally regulated providers. And keeping developing our system and our results along that line, notwithstanding our exponential growth, is very important. So having the proportionate regulation that goes with that is very important. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be at all a compromise around consumer protection, and we believe our system is generating very good results in that regard. Afterpay CEO Anthony Eisen there. Now, Afterpay shares have surged around 1,000% since the March low last year. Rival Zip up by about 800%. So are they and those stocks within the buy now, pay later sector overvalued? I spoke earlier with Elio D'Amato from Daylight Financial Group. Elio, shares in buy now, pay later stocks have surged over the past 12 months. Is the sector overvalued? Well, for most, yes. And by any metric, even with the most lofty expectations. But you know, that's not really the point. What investors really are hoping for is that the sector will eventually grow into its valuation. And if in 10 years' time they achieve what they say they will achieve, then, well, today's prices, they're not overvalued. We heard from two of the biggest players today in terms of their profit updates, both Afterpay and Zip. Very briefly, what did you make of their results? Well, nothing that changes the unwavering belief of their shareholders, to be honest with you. Incredibly strong sales growth, merchant growth across the board, growing number of repeat customers, and their global expansion remains on track. So uh, those that bought into the thematic of buy now, pay later being an alternative means of consumers purchasing goods and services are definitely validated in their belief uh, on the back of these numbers, and and hence why uh, the continued support of them. Isn't the question now where does the growth come from, given that they're looking for opportunities overseas? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's now more players, uh, greater adoption by users will inevitably mean that more participants will come in and try to take some of that lucrative market share and, of course, deliver a slightly alternative means of differentiation, which, you know, could possibly shake out some of uh, the existing clients of the early incumbents. But, uh, you know, with only around, depending on which research you read, around 8 to 12% of all transactions um, via digital uh, pathways that are made up via the buy now, pay later space, there's plenty of headroom there still to be made. And I dare suggest companies will be pointing to that as where their future growth will come from. Uh, there's been a code of conduct released by the industry themselves, right? So what are the implications of that? Well, it's validation for the sector, really. No longer simply a thing for millennials and the emerging Gen Z market. Buy now, pay later through this sort of recognition means that it's uh, garnered enough uh, import to enable something like this so that uh, at least those participants who play in that space are governed by a set of rules that ultimately protect the consumers that they're making money from. I guess the likes of Afterpay would argue that 
these new guidelines, I guess, they're already meeting them anyway. But there are calls for stricter rules, like those in the UK. If that were to happen in Australia, what would happen to their valuation? Well, always difficult to say, but uh, on early indication and the evidence presented, uh, not much of an impact at all. And in fact, it's uh, not surprising to see that the current incumbents are actually welcoming potential for increased regulation because, of course, what that does is it protects their interests more from those you know, emerging businesses that may not have the infrastructure already at play to, uh, to, do, to deal with this. So while it's hard to quantify you know, how affordability tests or credit checks or increased merchant fee transparency would impact the bottom line, it's unlikely to be you know, any more savage than participants already experienced to this. I mean, Afterpay, Zip, they're more ecosystems now on their own right, a destination for online customers shunning traditional credit with you know, their high interest rates and the like. We've definitely seen a shift to more debit payments and these guys are riding the wave of that meeting the digital needs of the modern consumer using an alternative payment method that doesn't charge them through the nose with high interest rates, which in this low interest rate environment does frustrate many consumers. Elio D'Amato there from Daylight Financial Group. The Australian share market rose 0.8% today, 6,834 on the S&P ASX 200. The miners doing well and Qantas froze almost 2% despite posting a, a $1 billion underlying half-year loss. For more on that and the future of Qantas, I spoke earlier with Evan Lucas from Invest Smart. Evan, the Qantas result was predictable, even that was big. It did, though, see revenue fall $7 billion, but that underlying loss was only $1 billion in the scheme of things. What did you make of it? Yeah, only is probably the word. Uh, it, it felt very much like 2014. And why I say that is that it goes back to the financial year of 2014, where Alan Joyce was pretty new to Qantas at that time, but he took some very, very big hits with doing a big, big write down, big, big take of legacy, particularly employment contracts to write that off as well. So it, it does feel very similar in terms of, of what's happened on here. That underlying number that you just quoted, that that basically $1.03 billion loss that you're alluding to was better than the market had expected is not unsurprising. The interesting thing about the whole Qantas numbers is that, again, they're doing, getting back to that 2014 idea, they're doing similar things. They know that they're going to have a significant amount of staff that probably don't come back from the 31st of March when JobKeeper ends. And you can see they've been, inverted commas, proactive in offering redundancies, doing it as you know as clean as they can. And that was part of the statutory net profit number that you saw, which was actually $1.5 billion because they are continuing to sort of basically treat FY21 like another year of a reset. If you then also look at the inside of it, there's a few things there that I picked up on that really are the caveats or the, or the the look forward idea for, for Qantas, and that is capacity. So they are believing that come the third quarter, so basically July through to the end of September this year, that capacity domestically will be about 60%. And then at the, the last quarter of the year, October through December, it will be about 80%. Clearly, that is all caveated on the vaccine and it is all caveated on whether or not the states continue to lock down their borders or not. You could hear in Alan Joyce this morning talking about that is being a massive impactor on confidence and therefore a massive impactor on actual usage. So you could see that in, in his forward guidance and what he's talking about is that they were really starting to see a pickup through Christmas, 
But then once January hit, we had the issues in Perth, issues in Melbourne, and also some issues in Sydney. It it really did take away. So there is still, you know, that they are still very much beholden to the whole issue around COVID and how Australia is managing it. Their international business, they're very clear that that's at least 2022, possibly even 2023, before they even start talking about capacity compared to pre-COVID levels. So it's a very interesting number indeed. Ultimately, do you think the airline is ready to take advantage of pent-up demand when it happens? Because when we look at the way investors have reacted, they've reacted positively. They have. And and look, the, the answer to that is yes. And the reason you can say that is that they have so many aircraft sitting on basically on the tarmac doing nothing and they can almost flick the switch they will do it very slowly though and i will need to point that out you can see that they will probably try and extract value where they can you know we we, as you said they expect capacity of pre-covid levels in july through september to be 60 percent and they'll probably make sure they moderate that And, and i know it's a cynical thing to say but they can extract value from it from that perspective Virgin is still a long way away from being a really big competitor to them as they get off the ground, Bain Capitals and, you know, Jane Hurtlicker have a lot of things to do before they actually really start being a competition to Qantas. So they do have the ability to turn it on. You've also got to look at it from the point of view that what was surprising in today's results is the freight business. The freight business is booming um, and they're clearly soaking that up and that's only probably going to get stronger towards the back half of this year. So that they do have parts of the business that are not only ready to, that are taking up that, that change. The, the big question and the big unknown, as I said at the start of all of this, is what the actual consumer does. Does the consumer, after we get to a vaccination level that actually allows us to you know, freely move internally in the country, actually see a return to the same level of movement? That, that's the big unknown. Has there been a structural shift in the economy where virtual meetings, which because you've got to look at it from the point of view, business transport was one of the biggest parts of Qantas's business. Moving around actual commercial business will clearly not come back to pre-COVID levels because virtual meetings are clearly now ingrained in our, in our structural movements. And that may also be part of the answer is that although they could get back to it, it may actually not return to pre-COVID levels because we've structurally changed the way we operate. Evan Lucas there from InvestSmart. That is SBS On The Money for this Thursday, the 25th of February, 2021. I'm Ricardo Gonsalves. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BizRicardo. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision.